that's not the sound of a screaming peacock. That's the song Atomic Age to Stone Age from the band The Tiki Creeps. You can find them over at tikicreeps.bandcamp.com. It'll take you to their album Invaders from Beyond the Sound of Surf. And they're letting us use their song to open up this episode of Monster Kid Radio. This is episode number 163 going out on December 30th. Welcome to the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. You're going to get to hear that song in its entirety at the end of the show after we've had a chance to talk about the 1958 film, The Screaming Skull, from director Alex Nickel. And I'm not going to talk about it alone. We have got returning guest author Stephen D. Sullivan coming to Monster Kid Radio to talk about this movie. This is one that he really likes. I really like. We thought we'd talk about it together here on the show. Before we get to all that, though, let me tell you about our website at monsterkidradio.net. Longtime listeners know this is where you're going to find links to everything like our Facebook group, our Live 365 internet radio station, our Patreon page, our Amazon store, and our songs section where you're going to be able to find links to every song that's appeared on a previous episode of Monster Kid Radio. Also over here, you're going to find our contact information, monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or our voicemail line, which is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. We did receive a piece of email feedback about the recent Creature Cast Among Us episode. I'll probably read that on a future episode of Creature Cast Among Us. But if you have anything else you want to talk about here on the show... Email me or drop me a line. That voicemail line does have a three-minute limit because that's how Google Voice works. You know, we're going to catch up with Stephen D. Sullivan, and then we're going to talk about the Screaming Skull right after this. Oh, and there are spoilers ahead. Fair warning. The ultimate in adult and unadulterated horror. Bursting onto the screen in the most lavishly beautiful, sensationally shocking picture of modern times. Blood and Roses, starring two alluring continental beauties, introduced by Roger Vadim, the stormy genius who gave you Bridget Bardot. Annette Vadim, filling the screen with the all-pervading scent of chilling fear. Elsa Martinelli, whose exquisite loveliness marked her as the victim of an indescribable horror. Mel Ferrer, haunted by the curse that was centuries old. A girl whose secret is reflected in an image too dreadful for the eye to behold. of Yucca Flats. Filmed on the burning hot sands by Yucca Flats. See terror, panic, murder. See the Cardoza and Francis production of The Beast of Yucca Flats. Yucca Flats. 
see a man turn killer, see a woman ravaged, see one of the most exciting movies ever made, see the beast of Yucca Flats. across the desert, panic, a bloodthirsty killer stalks a moonlit desert, see the beast of Yucca Flats. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and the Tingler. Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights? into some of your favorite movies. If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune into B Movie Cast at bmoviecast.com. Listen, if you can imagine the furor of love, then maybe you'll hear these walls here, these windows answer. The Screaming Skull. The Screaming Skull is a motion picture magnificent in its horror. Therefore, this certificate assures burial service without cost to anyone in the audience who dies of fright while seeing the screaming skull. See the revisualization of a woman scorned. See the vengeful violence of the undead. The screaming skull, starring Alex Nichol. See terror from the year 5000 and the screaming skull. Monster Kid Radio is a podcast that reaches its climax in shocking horror. Its impact is so terrifying that it may have an unforeseen effect. Or we may just be joined by Stephen D. Sullivan, longtime listener, longtime friend, longtime supporter of Monster Kid Radio. How's it going, Steve? Oh, it's going pretty good. You know, it's almost Christmas time here. I'm not sure when you'll be hearing this, but uh, almost ready for Christmas, almost ready for the end of the year. We are recording this the weekend before Christmas. The episodes will go out the week after Christmas, and I don't think I planned this intentionally. Well, I know I didn't plan this intentionally. The first episode of 2014 was about the movie The Skull. The final episodes of 2014 will be about The Screaming Skull. Now, the movies aren't related, but that was a nice kind of wraparound, kind of start and stop that, on The Skull. So. That's really cool. I hadn't I hadn't really thought of that either. That's awesome. Yeah. So The Screaming Skull, man, this is... Well, we're going to get into it. 
but I know this is one that you've liked for a long time. You've mentioned it off and on over the years on Facebook and, and emails and things like that. But before we get to that, Steve, how's it been going? It's been going pretty good. I've been really busy finishing up uh, Tournament of Death 3, which I ran as a Kickstarter early in the year with the Olympics. You guys may remember I oh, wrote. Yeah. Wrote the book live over the 16 days of the Olympics. So impressive, man. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an insane thing to do. I'm going to do it at least one more time uh, in two years with the Summer Olympics. So I'm at the point of finishing up the final edits on that book. And within uh, maybe by the time you all are hearing this, all the backers will have gotten all their ebook prizes and that kind of stuff. And the print books should be rolling in uh, right in the first part of the 2015, the next year. Very cool. Yeah, so that's good. And then I've been contemplating uh, working on other things. I think I've mentioned, you may have mentioned on the show, the Cushing Horrors project, which I'm toying with still. I've got all a lot of the pieces, but... The story hasn't quite come together, and that's a a classic monster rally. Mm-hmm. And the of course the trick with the classic monster rally is how how do you fit all the monsters in? <laughs> well, and we've talked about this, and you've mentioned it on Facebook too that when we think the classic Universal monsters or the classic monsters, of course you think Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, but then you start throwing things like in the Invisible Man or Creature from the Black Lagoon, and while I think they or start the Mummy or the Mummy, okay. I think they all kind of belong to the same pantheon. There is still kind of a, a disconnect between the supernatural-based and the science-based. Right, yeah, absolutely. And I, I've expressed before, I don't remember if I did it in a call to your show, or, but I've done it online, that I think there's a disconnect between things like the creature and the mole people, yeah. which are classic 1950s sci-fi kind of monsters, tarantula, a lot of other things like that, the alligator people. And... Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, the Mummy, the classic supernatural creatures. So science versus supernatural. And when you're doing a monster rally, you're going to decide, are they all going to be supernatural? Are they going to be science? Are they going to be a mix? How are you going to get them all together? What time period are you going to set it in? You know, Is it going to be a 50s thing, in which case the science would seem like a, a more rational thing to do? Or is it going to be in the Victorian era or you know the early 1920s or 30s or somewhere around there where it would be more supernatural or maybe a mix? So there's a lot of stuff to kind of figure out. It's like I've got a lot of my players and I've got ideas for how they'll interact, but it's like, you got to have more than two monsters in a monster rally, right? Oh, yeah. And I don't think it counts to just have a hunchback assistant. You need more than that. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. You know, it's not like yeah. the House of Frankenstein where you get six monsters and one of them is the pretty but hunchbacked uh, nurse right. group. Which we love that movie. I mean, we're not saying I love we that film. And I love that character. I always thought it was a stretch to say, well, here's another monster. She's gorgeous. She's gorgeous, <laughs> but she's hunchbacked and tragic. And I love that character. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not quite sure that counts. So yeah, so you got to balance all those things out. So so I've got my werewolf arc, and I've kind of got my mummy arc, and I, I kind of know where the Frankenstein monster might be. The question is, if I'm using those, should I use Dracula? Should I use Carmilla? Should I, you know, what ah, there you go. vampire options do I have? So I've, I've been doing stuff like I'm reading uh, The Mummy's Foot right now, and before that I read uh, Carmilla, which I, I highly recommend for people that are into classic monsters. If you like Dracula, chances are you'll like Carmilla. That's where the Karnstein stuff came out of, wasn't it? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's an, it's an earlier work than Dracula, 
and it kind of obviously directly influenced Dracula. And it's it's by Le Fanu, who was uh, Sheridan Le Fanu, who was a favorite of H.P. Lovecraft. And H.P. Lovecraft is, of course, a favorite of mine. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so it was yeah. fun getting Le Fanu. <laughs> it was a, an enjoyable thing and interesting to see a, a pre-Dracula take on vampirism. I think sometimes we forget that Dracula wasn't is not the first fictional you know literature vampire, that there are other things like Carmilla. Uh, I think Varney the Vampire predates that as well, doesn't it? Yeah, so, right. Yeah, I've you know, read you've got a handful of those as well. Well, exactly. Right, yeah. So. And, uh, you know, I have a friend that I was arguing with this week that uh, it's like, Dracula's not even the very good. It's not really a classic. It's just, you know, people just think it is. I'm like, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, this, I love this guy, but he likes Twilight. Oh, my God. I did see that post on your Facebook page, and it's like, <laughs> what is going on? What kind of world are we living in now? Right, yeah. It's like, are you really my friend, or have you been replaced by some kind of weird body snatcher? <laughs> oh, anyway, man. so I'm, I'm toying with that, and Frost Harrow as well, which I keep talking about, and I'm hoping... With the tournament out of the way, I'll be able to concentrate more on supernatural and horror sure. this year. Then, but you know, fantasy is obviously part of my roots, and people keep drawing me back in, which is why you know we go from talking about Seventh Voyage of Sinbad to the Screaming Skull. Sure. Well, you've always found a way to kind of mix it up a little bit with the Tournament of Death stuff. You got a Gilman reference, so I mean, you've always found right, a way. Yeah. You know, even though Tournament of the Death is this fantasy-based thing, you still have always found a way to work your monsters into things. And it's, you know, as creative people, we are so tempted to and and always want to play with the things that we love, the monsters. You know, whether they're supernatural or science-based. I mean, I'm doing the same thing, trying to write some stuff, and I've got some plans for next year. So I totally understand where you're coming from, man. Absolutely. And just want to put it out there. Universal, I will write you a Monster Rally cycle that is going to be better than this crazy superhero one you're thinking of doing. What are you thinking? Didn't you do that with Van Helsing? Did you see how poorly Steve, that did? Don't. No, don't, don't. 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 You give it power whenever you talk about it. I'm telling you, man, I'm really worried that in a couple of years we're going to think, oh, that wasn't so bad comparatively. I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't just mean those of us that really love special effects and are willing to put up with a lot of stuff to see mm -hmm. kind of uh, cartoon transformations on the screen. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can think of two things that I liked about the movie Van Helsing. One was the musical score. The other one... Was it Kate Beckinsale? I, I'm a dude. And, yeah, I, <laughs> right, it's like, I'm a yeah, I, that wasn't so good. And, uh, then there was Kate Beckinsale, though, man. I, I have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not to go down that path too much, but yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. But I love the music. I listen to the music quite a bit. Oh cool. <laughs> cool. I'm betting you don't listen to the music of the Screaming Skull. I'm not even sure if it's available on You know, uh, actually when I was listening to it and it's got some very familiar notes because there is some classical music that was incorporated into the score. Right. The guy that uh, that did the score is uh you know, has done some other noteworthy composing too. Sure, sure. And his music gets used as stock music in a lot of things as well. Ernest Gold is the composer and I would buy this on C D. I actually like the music a lot. <laughs> it's kinda eerie. The, yeah. Is it the oboe that's going on the I screaming? Think so. Yeah. It's, it's one of those really nice kind of woodwind yeah. weird instruments that you don't hear a lot. I think it's the oboe. It's the one that plays the is it the swan in Peter and the Wolf? <laughs> oh wow, I don't know. I haven't I know about that here I am pulling out uh, obscure uh, obscure childhood references to know the instruments in the orchestra by listening to Peter and Wolf. Yep. <laughs> 
Wow, I haven't thought about anyway. that in years. Anyway, yes. But yeah, it's got some nice spooky music. It opens up with this great kind of gimmicky bit that I kind of riffed on a second ago. You know, The Screaming School is a movie that reaches its climax in shocking horror, promising audience members that, you know, you'll get a free coffin if you die watching this thing. I mean, it's very right. William Castle-like. I love it. The opening of it is just classic William Castle. And it's funny, I hadn't, hadn't watched it until last night since the... DVD released much earlier in the in 2014. We should probably mention that now is that the oh, yeah. the DVD to watch for this is the four movies for you release that came out from MGM this past year because it the picture is clean and it looks good end to end and it has no detectable breaks or cuts or any of the other flaws that versions on say youtube or archive.org which are relatively watchable oh sure but they're very inferior and they don't even contain the last line of the film which i didn't even remember until i was watching it last night and the last (laughs) line of the film is rats Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i was like what yeah yeah Now, the movie is in the public domain, so it turns it up is. on archive.org, the internet, tons of Mill Creek collections. I've seen it in eight packs, four packs. I've seen it uh, hosted by numerous horror hosts, but this edition was released in May from Shout Factory and Timeless Media. It was a four pack, and there's four movies crammed onto one disc, but you couldn't, it still is probably the best print, or it's not print, but transfer. Oh, yeah, it's easy. That I've seen of it. Uh, the other movies on that set are uh, The Vampire, The Cat People, and The Vampire Lovers. There's a Hammer film on there for some reason. Let's bring it back to Camilla. Um. <laughs> right. There you go. I mean, yeah. absolutely. That's Carmilla done fairly well. Although that print is not the best print no. that's available on that. If you're going to go for The Vampire Lovers, go for the Blu-ray, which is Agreed. gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, really, the disc sells for like what six bucks. Yeah, it's it, super it, cheap. It's yeah, well it's, under ten. Yeah, and I'd spend six bucks for just the Screaming Skull by itself. This was a gorgeous transfer. It looks so good compared to everything that I've seen. Yeah, yeah, it it looks almost new. Mm-hmm. Almost oh, new. There are I agree. A couple of places where it's t- you can tell its age, but there's so much detail that's missing in all the other prints. And I don't know if we mentioned it, but this is one of those weird films that I've kind of became obsessed in finding a really good print of for no <laughs> no really discernible reason in a way except that I hate censorship and I hate things that are cut up and as a monster kid fan you know you always see stuff on TV and you think before the days of cable and uncut movies on television you would think there's something missing from this and the screaming skull was one of those films that had just enough breaks and just enough cuts to go, oh, darn it, I want to see an unexpurgated, a good print of this. And it was almost, until the Movies For You release, it was it was impossible to find. I think I have five, six, <laughs> maybe eight or ten different releases of this. Mm-hmm. And I, I even have, there's a uh, a document that I was keeping that was like Screaming Skull best version version info, which also contained info on the best version of Beast of Yucca Flats. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> uh, and thankfully, Juan from the B Movie Cast hooked me up with a great version of Beast from Yucca Flats. Oh, I don't remember what it's called now, but it actually has a long documentary 
about the beast as well. So I've got a, a really good version of that. And now that uh, MGM brought this four pack out, I have a really good version of the Screaming Skull. But I don't, I don't, so I don't have to keep that set of notes up. And the and the notes would be stuff like this looks like a, a VHS copy. But it, its uh, runtime is approximately right. Or this is a, a really good version of this, but the infamous bra scene is cut in the middle. And you, so you, you know, there's stuff, all sorts of little notes like that I'd make and try to figure out what the what the best one to watch. And I don't remember what previously the best one was, but this one is is the way to go now. Some places so. were saying the Good Times video release was probably the better version of it. I don't know if that's true. Knowing good times, I don't know if that's really uh, an accurate. Um, My note for good call. times is DVD does sport a decent quality print, but it's cut. It's missing the scene where uh, Peggy Weber strips down to her bra and slip, which is it's like a one minute sequence, and it's barely there at all in that one. Otherwise, it, that was a good print. So somewhere I have a summary. <laughs> Of what I said there, maybe, but... Uh. <laughs> well, if you go to the Internet Movie Database, too, and you look up The Screaming School, there's a message board conversation about what is the best DVD version. And because it's... I mean, there are posts going back to 2008 before this DVD had come out, so you can kind of go see and look at the history of who put what out and what was missing here or there, that sort of thing. So, But right. either way, I mean, this DVD now is the, is the it, one to have. It's the cat's pajamas. My... Previous notes here, I see mine says that the Alpha release was probably overall the best print available, but it's still only VHS quality, according to my notes. So, But you don't have to worry about that now. Exactly. <laughs> All of you monster kids run right out and get the four movies for you version from MGM. And like Derek said, it's like six bucks on yeah. Amazon. And, and you, you get... Four movies. Four movies. And, I mean, you probably don't need all four of them, but... Right, you know. but they're not bad movies. I no. mean, Vampire Lovers is excellent, uh, even though the print's not the best. And The Vampire is very good, and The Bat People's the other one. Is that right? Oh, uh, yes. Bat People's okay. It's, yeah. you know, 1970s kind of TV movie quality. But The Skull makes it all worth it. It's yes. worth it just for The Skull. So... Agreed. So the skull came out in 1958, and believe it, American International was behind it, or at least in terms of distributing it. Apparently, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's funny because it's a public domain thing. Uh, I was saying to you when we talked before the show started, I hadn't really thought much about it in terms of the production and all that kind of stuff. I thought, well, this is just an obscure little kind of cheapy film. Exactly, a little cheapy thing they put together over a few weekends. And right, you know, no. It's, <laughs> As a matter of fact, no. Yeah. Uh, this has got some real cred to it. You know, it's a first-time director, but he's not right. a first-time person in the film industry or, or even as an actor. He'd done Broadway. Alex Nichol uh, was the man behind the camera on this. He's also in front of the camera in this thing. But he's got a long acting career, and yeah. Not only does he direct, but he also plays Mickey, who's kind of the demented groundskeeper. Mm-hmm. For all of you uh, all of you Torgo fans... <laughs> <laughs> you you maybe see a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, Torgo and Mickey or the other way around since this came first. But yeah, huh. yeah he had he had some cred. Now I want to see a buddy flick with Torgo and Mickey. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> they can lope happily into the sunset. Exactly. Together. So 
know, I suppose at some point, uh, and maybe this is that point, we ought to actually talk about what the movie's about, and then we yeah, can talk we a little more about it. Yeah, probably dive into that a little bit. But yeah, we definitely want to get back to the people involved, because it's got some real cred. But the movie itself, it's it's just a little over an hour long, and it's it's basically a haunted house kind of style story. Right, yeah. When I was reading about it today, I read the director, uh, who plays Mickey, lured the, the main actress, Peggy Weber, into doing this by saying that he wanted to do a uh, a remake of Rebecca kind of what <laughs> yeah that's what i read <laughs> and you know and in some sense <laughs> all right in some sense i could see that i was like what and then i was like oh yeah well of course because it's a story about a husband who leaves an estate and comes back with a new wife but the ghost of the previous wife hangs over the estate and everything they do. So in Rebecca, uh, he brings Rebecca back to Manderley, and the tension is all about what happened to his his dead wife. And if you guys haven't seen Rebecca, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock and produced by David O. Selznick, you need to do, to see that. That's, a, that's like a, a genuinely great film. It's hard to go wrong with Hitchcock. Rebecca is really good. Yeah, it is. It is. Even though there's kind of a weird, it's not quite a Hitchcock film because of the, the tension between right. Hitchcock and, and Selznick, but it's got kind of the MDM gothic grandeur kind of mm-hmm. thing going on, which is not, not something you'd ever think about in a Hitchcock film. Hitchcock tends to be kind of contemporary and, and edgy and that kind of stuff. So it's got the kind of this melodramatic romance. Anyway. <laughs> looking at that i could say well yeah this is kind of like a supernatural version of rebecca although rebecca has kind of supernatural overtones but nothing actually supernatural actually happens in it but in this we've got um eric whitlock who's played by john hudson bringing his new wife jenny played by peggy weber back to the home estate that he shared with his late wife marion mm-hmm who died mysteriously. So the couple comes home and they immediately meet. There, there's only like five people. Or, it's, it's a very small cast. It's a very small cast. Uh, they immediately meet the Reverend Edwards, Edward Snow, played by uh, Russ Conway, who's the only guy in this I actually recognized when I was watching it last last night, and his wife, Tony Johnson. The Reverend and his wife come to visit and welcome them home, and we quickly discover that Eric is a little worried about his new wife that she's uh, been traumatized by the death of her parents when she was younger and is carrying that around and of course he's carrying around the uh, the recent death of his former wife so these people are bringing the baggage back to this eerie estate which is basically it's a house and grounds and apparently because the late wife died very suddenly all the actual wealth that she was subject to has been tied up in probate but eric and and jenny have this house and apparently she has some money and so they've come here to get away from her past and it looks like i don't know where do you think this takes place derek um you know i always thought it was maybe florida or somewhere in it would the have s- to be somewhere like that but you know there really aren't enough accents to really right yeah there's it no- down, but it does feel kind of like that hmm it's somewhere like a, wet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's somewhere that looks fairly lush. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not 
clearly in the wilds of Wisconsin or upstate New York or anything like that. And researching a little bit, I discovered that this was apparently shot at the estate of the heir to the NP shopping store fortune. But when I looked up this guy's references, he had like six houses. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, one of them was in New Jersey, and one of them was in Hollywood, and one of them was in Florida. I'm guessing it's either Hollywood or Florida. And maybe if I'd had 30 more minutes of research, I could have figured that out. But in any case, it's, it seems to be a fairly warm, uh, warm, wet climate. Yeah. And it's got kind of a, a southern style mansion and a very well kept grounds and gardens surrounding it. And the, the newlyweds come back there and we discover after they've met the reverend and his wife, who are clearly going to look out after our protagonist here, we also meet Mickey, who we've mentioned before, who's uh, played by the director, Alex Nichol, which I hadn't even realized until we started looking into this, uh, who's the demented groundskeeper, who is... Mm-hmm. It's funny, he always looks to me like a cross between Keith Carradine and <laughs> <laughs> and oh. Klaus Kinski. Oh wow! Did that come to, come to you at all well, when you were it watching? Does. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he looks like to me. I can Every see time a I see him, in him for sure. Yeah, he's got that. Wow. And he's also kind of got that same kind of weird, demented acting chop thing going on, where Mickey is he's simple or brain damaged or whatever you want to say and he he kind of limps around and lopes around he's the hunchback character without the actual hunchback yeah there you go and he's the groundskeeper and he keeps mm-hmm. the he i keep the master's grounds oh wait that's my house <laughs> 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 he keeps the grounds of the estate and and it's outside the house is beautiful inside it's like a shell. There's very little furniture in it. It really is bereft of anything. It seems very cold. Yeah, because there's just nothing there. And they explained right. that the reason there's nothing there is because the former wife had sold all the furniture after her parents died and intended on replacing it with stuff that she and Eric could call their own and make it their own home. Mm-hmm. But apparently that never happened because, well, who knows? She seems like she was maybe a little wacky. And clearly she died before those plans came to fruition. Mm -hmm. So they've come home to this spooky, almost empty house. And it's, it's empty enough that there's even in the bedroom, there's like a candle on the nightstand, which is a little odd. Not a lamp, but a candle. Did you notice that? Yeah, that's a really good point. So is there... Huh. Is there no electricity in the house? It seems like there must be because of the lighting, but it's 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 totally hard to tell. Yeah. It's big, empty, spooky house. Sure. I mean, it gives it that kind of pseudo-gothic kind of feel. Right. So, you know, have the candles and all that. And, and the way a lot of it's shot, too. You know, you're placing cameras behind guardrails and things like that. So, right, you know, it's yeah. got this very gothic kind of feel. Yeah, for a cheap film, it's actually shot with a lot of atmosphere. Yeah, it's very lush. And, and there's, there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and there's even a, a moment where, a very romantic moment at the start of the honeymoon, where Eric reaches over, and I think this is a great thing. They're kind of leaning on this bed together, and he just reaches over and snuffs the candle with his fingertips. Yeah. 
without like licking them or anything. And I'm like, wow, I'm not entirely sure how he did that, but that was pretty cool. It's, it's just pretty like, impressive. Boof. And then fade to black and we don't get to see what they're doing because this is actual 1958. <laughs> <laughs> they are sleeping in separate cots, but we know what's about to go down. Right. You, yeah. You I go, mean, it's, Mr. Kind of a, it's kind of a cot. <laughs> yeah. Cot situation too. It's not like one of these big Victorian beds or anything. It's kind of no. He calls them cots. It's like it's like the furniture isn't set up, so they had to do a little. Right, they're, they're camping out in their home. I don't know. <laughs> so whatever whatever the A and P guy's fortune was, clearly it didn't include enough to get furniture in this house. <laughs> oh wow, good point. You know, if it was, hmm, I wonder what happened there. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's kind of an odd odd thing. Clearly, you would not clear out a house of the furniture if you were renting it to a movie production company, right? Right. You'd just leave, even if you thought they were complete idiots, you'd still leave the furniture there and just make them carry heavy insurance. So right. this seems like, well, you know, if you got six houses, I guess one of them can have no furniture in it for true, a while. True, true. <laughs> Maybe he was in the process of selling it and they had already cleared Who knows? Anyway, so the, Either way. <laughs> the first night that they're there in the house... Jenny wakes up in the middle of the night to weird screams. And investigating, she like wanders through the house and can't find what's really going on. And she ends up stumbling into a room that has a, like a wardrobe and a weird portrait. And she sees this weird portrait in the dark and it, and she screams. And Eric shows up. And she's like, where were you? And he's like, well, I heard a noise, so he's off investigating the house. And it turns out this weird portrait, and this has to be one of the worst-looking movie portraits I have ever seen in my life. It turns out that this is a self-portrait of the dead wife, because apparently she was a painter, and she painted this. And and they even (laughs) give a little nod. It's like, uh, don't, don't worry about it, hon. It's just a crudely painted self-portrait. <laughs> yeah, it's not very good. <laughs> no, it's dreadful. It uh-huh. is really, you know, I mean, my kids could have done better when they were seven, I think. It's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of astonishing. Clearly, they didn't spend any money on that. Sure. And they kind of referenced it and got away with it, so that's fine. But it apparently it's freaked her out because it reminds her of her mother somehow. And it's like, uh, your wife was into, you know, beautiful clothes and big hats and whatever. And, and my mom was too. And so anyway, she's freaked out. And that kind of starts the slide into insanity. Perhaps, perhaps not. Perhaps, yes. <laughs> so that, that's their first night. The next day, he has to go off to, on some kind of a business venture. She spends her time trying to make friends with Mickey, the slightly crazed gardener. So they, gather up some flowers, and they take them to the grave of Marion, the dead wife. Which is just creepy. It's a very creepy gravesite. Those of you that haven't seen the film, it's not like a grave. It's like a little monument that's kind of a, oh, I don't know, Derek, how would you describe it? It's like if you took the Washington Monument and you <laughs> squashed it so that it was almost a pyramid shape. Yeah. And then on the front, so it's about I don't know, six, maybe seven feet tall, maybe less. And on the front of it, it has a fully carved face that sticks out like a head jutting out of the stone, like a full head jutting out of the stone, which I assume 
this face is supposed to be the wife. That's just weird. It is. It's very <laughs> weird. This is one of the weirdest grave markers I've ever seen in cinema. It's mm-hmm. just odd. Anyway, they, they go to this weird, creepy grave marker, and they they lay some flowers down and make obeisance to uh, the to the dead wife and and uh hopefully she's think Jenny is thinking that you know she's going to make peace with the former owner she's going to make friends with the gardener everything will be fine mm-hmm. well that night Eric's not home so she goes to sleep alone and we have the infamous bra scene and that's the the scene in which most of the public domain prints clearly got into the hands of pro- horny projectionists who were in there <laughs> snipping out. I was going to ask you why you, you thought they cut it, because it's not overly revealing, but no, I think you're right. I don't think it was an act of censoring. I think probably somebody probably cut the film out for those. Yeah, that makes right. more yeah. sense. In the old days when there were projectionists... Uh, <laughs> in the in, old in, days, listen to you. When there were projectionists Ugh. in the film, well, yeah. there are projectionists now. I well, mean, there were, there were people that were do- voted to doing that, and there had to be people tending those machines fairly constantly. I used to do that. I understand. No, it's just, God, feeling old, man. (laughs) But when you started saying, I know. (laughs) Yeah, I I learned that trade too. (laughs) And now people don't even know what it is. Now they just go there and hit press start. Anyway. But when you were sending (laughs) film from theater to theater to theater to theater, eventually the film would get more and more worn. So that's one cause of breakage. But... Often, at the end of the run, you'd be in some kind of really sleazy theater somewhere and, and deep in the inner city where it's all crumbling down. And they're showing the Screaming Skull today, and tomorrow they're showing nudie cuties. Mm-hmm. And sometimes projectionists would, is like, oh, the film broke. Here, let me take out the 20 feet that has nudity in it. <laughs> exactly. No, that's that's exactly right. If you go and, for modern audiences, if you watch uh, the Grindhouse movie that Rodriguez and Tarantino did, there's a, a sexy scene in the Rodriguez portion of that that has that bit where they're, they're about to show some things and it goes to you know footage missing right. because the idea is that somebody clipped that scene out you know and that was pretty common and added it to their personal collection if you've ever seen incubus with the william shatner mm-hmm. film that's in esperanto there's <laughs> like just a very brief clip out of when the girl is taking off her top or something like that. It's it's near the end of the film. That's just, they found one copy of this film, <laughs> and it was in French, and this is the only one, and somebody clearly just snipped a couple of frames of boobs out. <laughs> Take home, put them on your slide projector, throw them up on the wall. Also, on the, I haven't seen the newest MGM release. On the previous MGM release of Invasion of the B-Girls, there's another section of nudity that's just gone that someone clearly took. And so it was it was not something that was uncommon back in the day. And even though there's no real nudity in this film, right. there's a section missing from this scene where she mm-hmm. strips off her shirt down to her slip and then walks over to the window. In the, the latest production, the one we're recommending you get, it's all there. So, in any case... Yeah, it's clear that they went back to the uh, the original print as opposed to... like the, Maybe even the original negative. I don't know. Right, which we're lucky they had. Yeah, yeah, because it's one of those public domain, cheapy kind of movies. At least, that's right. how we distributed it. So, you know, it's not one of those things that... 
you know, somebody's dying to find a master, you know, unless you're a monster kid. You yeah, know? it's not it's not Metropolis. No, <laughs> there's no. not like an ongoing search to find the missing five seconds from the bra scene in the Screaming Skull. <laughs> no one cares unless you're completist monster kids like us. That you know, it's like, damn it, why is there a cut there? Well, well, Steve cared. Apparently, he had this master document that he's been carrying around for years, looking for oh, the bra scene. Yeah, so no. I did absolutely. <laughs> well, and that's. It's funny, you know. That's the thing that was really obviously missing sure. from most of the prints. It, it's, so. a, it's a weird jump. The way it was done, it was a weird jump. But yeah, right. it's, it's restored here, and it's just as good picture quality. It's not like they went and they had to go to France and pull somebody sixty millimeter collectors, you know, whatever. They had to put it, stitch it together. No, they had a really good print here, and it's just a smooth. Scene. Right, it's a smooth, continuous print. Mm-hmm. And there, there is a spot later on where there's a. The dialogue seemed to get out of sync for a little while. And then the, yeah. yeah, and then the picture ch- quality changed a little bit, and I thought, oh, maybe they did have to kind of piece this together from a couple rather than, you know, one pristine master print. But but that scene, is it's all intact. Anyway, it's the middle of the night. Uh, she hears screams again. She gets up and looks. Oh, I've, we forgot to say that when she'd heard the screams before, her husband had explained that as peacocks. Right. There are peacocks that roam these grounds. And I did go online and I did check and the peacocks do make those weird jungle sounds that always appear in jungle movies. That ah, ah, kind of sound that huh. you probably heard in the creature from the Black Lagoon. The sounds that they make in this screaming skull, those are pretty much peacock sounds, which is kind of weird and wonderful. But anyway, so he's explained that these are peacocks, and now he's gone, and she's alone. She gets up and looks out the window and doesn't see any peacocks. And she's like, well, okay, it's a big house. She doesn't say this aloud. And so she wanders in her nightgown down to the other room where the creepy portrait is <laughs> and the wardrobe to see if she can look out on the other parts of the grounds and see if there's peacocks there. And as she gets into this room with this wardrobe, in the wardrobe is the Screaming Skull. Dun, dun, dun. And so she goes, what? Screams and runs away. There's a lot of screaming in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of screaming. Not, not just from the skull. <laughs> peacocks or skulls or our heroine. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the first time we saw the skull, right? Yeah, this is the first time we've seen the skull during the film. So she freaks out, runs away. Then gathers her courage and goes back, goes into the room with the skull, opens the window, takes the skull and throws it out into the currently peacock-free grounds. As you do. As one would. Yes. You know? <laughs> Why not? And the skull kind of bounces and rolls on the, on the lawn and ends up face up kind of staring at the camera, which is, I think they must have run that in reverse somehow or something because it's, Either that or it would take a long time to roll a skull until you actually got it facing the camera exactly the way you wanted. Pre-CGI, exactly. everybody. I spent a lot of time looking at the skull because when you watch some of these low-budget monster movies and you see a skeleton or a skull or whatever, you can tell it's plastic. You can tell it's a model. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that the jaw is clearly attached <laughs> to the right. skull, it actually looks really good. Yeah. It's a really good-looking skull. You know, it's often you see in these in these pictures, the skull will be, if it's a real skull, it will be from uh, some kind of a medical college where they'll have, like, removed the cranium and then <laughs> the top of the cranium and then uh-huh. glued it back down so there's, like, an incision scar all around it. This looks like 
a pretty standard skull, aside from, as you said, the fact that the jaw is clearly kind of welded to it in a in a way. I love that we just had a conversation in which the it looks like a standard skull line just came up. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so having disposed of the skull, yes. she now creeps, starts to go back to bed, and there's a, a pounding on the door. She, It's like boom, 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 because it's a big old house, big old doors. And eventually she goes down to the front door and opens it, because this is a mansion, there's no peepholes. And, of course, right outside the door is... Dun, dun, dun! The screaming skull. <laughs> the skull is there. The skull came goes, back. <laughs> Staring right at her, and she goes, wah, again. Yep. And the skull seems to kind of leap at her and roll into the room, and she passes out. Mm-hmm. Well, because you would, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've already been told that she's got kind of a, a fragile mental state, whether, right? you know, regarding what happened with her parents, and she doesn't like to think about sad things, and things aren't very good. And then, I mean, you've got a skull screaming and chasing you around. I mean, that would probably do it. Yep, it would. You would think. But- <laughs> Then we get a cut outside very briefly, and we see Mickey lurking around, the groundskeeper, lurking around outside the house. Mm-hmm. Next thing we know, Jenny is, is being slapped awake. Well, I don't think he really slaps her. Maybe shakes her or something. And it's it's her husband. She's in bed, and she tells him this, this terrible story. And he looks for the skull, can't find it, and immediately decides that Mickey is trying to drive them away from the estate. So he's behind this. Now, she doesn't believe this because she likes Mickey because they've kind of become friends when they were doing that whole flowers on the creepy grave thing earlier. Uh, (laughs) But Eric chases down Mickey, and she chases Eric, and Eric roughs Mickey up a bit, and he's like, oh, it's it's the ghost of Marion. I'm not doing anything. And that kind of leaves that settled there for a little while uh, sure. so no real resolution but he's convinced that it's it's mickey she's not and they they go from there they they end up spending a lot of time during this film talking to the reverend and his wife because after all there's only five people in this movie right yeah <laughs> there, there's eric and jenny and mickey and the reverend and his wife so when things go wrong you get the the impression they don't really tell you how long's passed but it seems like it's more than just one or two days mm-hmm. even though the action all seems to take place over one or two days because it seems like the reverend and his wife actually have spent more time with jenny and more time with mickey because they all kind of seem to know each other they're very familiar with each other and there's there's a, a moment like when they first meet the reverend when they're leaving you know, we'll be at church on sunday you know there's a very it's implied that they spent a lot of time together at this point even though they don't explicitly say it Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it, it seems like the way they treat each other during the film later that there's in-between stuff that we haven't seen where they've right. the, where they've gotten to know each other a little better mm-hmm. because obviously in this, you know, 67-minute movie. <laughs> right. I <laughs> don't have time to show everything. But we discover that in in these conversations that Jenny was maybe in an insane asylum previously and so she's not <laughs> Well, it wasn't that kind of asylum, she says at one point. It wasn't that kind of sanitarium. <laughs> right. What, what, what kind of sanitarium could it be? <laughs> right. Yeah. So she's been put away for a little while to recover from her parents' death, and her parents ended up drowning mysteriously, and and she blames herself for somehow not rescuing them. And so she's kind of on the edge, and Eric 
his intention bringing her here was that this would be a new place for her and they would be able to start afresh and she wouldn't bring the memories. But the creepy portrait is haunting her and, and maybe the synopsis online implies that it's the ghost of the wife haunting her. And I, I'm not sure that that's really, really clear yeah. that that's, that's going on. That's not, not what I got. Uh, certainly watching it this last time, that it's her own mental instability that's haunting her. So he says, we can't just leave here, which is what the reverend suggests, or reverend or his wife, and I remember they're kind of used interchangeably to counsel these people. We have to stay here, or we'll be admitting that she's going out of her mind. <laughs> right? So right. we have to stay for her mental health, even though she seems to be losing her mental health here. Anyway, Eric decides that the best way, the best thing to do for her is to destroy this really terrible, creepy portrait. Mm-hmm. Hey, it makes sense to me. So he sets up like a little bonfire, and they get the portrait, and they put the portrait on it, and they throw lighter fluid or whatever onto it, and they, they set it on fire in this spectacular burning of this dreadful portrait. Now, usually in a film, when they destroy a portrait... I shudder because I'm, <laughs> I went to, I went to school as, as an art major, as a, a painting major, and I don't mean house painting. I mean actually painting, <laughs> painting, painting right. portraits, painting, painting still lives, painting, as a painting major. So if you see a film in which there is a, a painting destroyed, usually that makes me shudder because it's like, oh God, I hope they did that with a print rather than the original portrait and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Sure. This one, Part of me has that feeling, but another part of me is like, I kind of hope they burned the real portrait. <laughs> it's, just, it's so terrible. It really it, is pretty bad. It's pretty it rough. It's, you know, it's the worst portrait ever on film, and I do include the, I do include the portraits in Mano's Hands of Fate. This is way, way, you know, those are crude, but they have some redeeming quality. This is crude and has no redeeming qualities at all. It's just. It's awful. <laughs> they burn it to ashes, and then because they're conscientious, they're like, okay, it's the portrait is destroyed, but we should really put out this fire because it's, you know, it's a dry season and there's fire hazards and stuff. So Eric goes to get some buckets of water. He gives Jenny a rake to rake the ashes, and they're going to do that Boy Scout thing where you drown the ashes, uh, stir them, and then drown them again kind of thing. Seems like a good plan. Sure. But it goes horribly wrong, doesn't okay. it, Eric? There's a lot of things in this movie where um, they're doing everything they're supposed to do for what it is. Uh-huh. But things just don't work the way that they should, which is right. probably good for us because it wouldn't be a good movie otherwise. Right, but... otherwise it wouldn't be fun, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. As Jenny is is stirring the ashes to make sure they've smothered all the embers with water, what do you think she turns up in this pile of ashes where the portrait was? Okay, that was the sound of a screaming peacock. Found it on YouTube. And it's appropriate because it does have such an important part of the, well, okay, I don't know how important it is, but it does appear, or you can hear it, in the screaming school. We're going to come back in a couple of days with Steve to talk about the rest of the movie. I hate to leave you on that cliffhanger note, but, you know, 
Got to have you coming back for the rest of the – you got to come back in a couple of days to talk about The Screaming Skull with Steve Sullivan. Also, a quick point of clarification. At the very beginning of that discussion, Steve and I were talking about the other movies on that four-pack release, and I accidentally said that The Cat People was one of the movies in that collection. Now, Steve later called it The Bat People, and that's actually the movie that's in the set. It's The Bat People. Bat is in – I don't know what bats sound like, but it's bats, not cats. So it's the bad people that's on that set. Doesn't matter. Less than six bucks, you're going to get a great print of the Screaming School. Have we made that point enough yet? It's a great print. And if you're looking to add it to your own collection, head over to the Amazon store. Hit the Amazon store button at monsterkidradio.net. That's going to take you to what we call the Monster Kid Radio Laboratory, where you can pick up pretty much any movie or book that we've talked about here on the show in the past. We get like a penny or two from every sale that we make through this site. It doesn't cost you guys and gals anything extra, but we are an Amazon affiliate. Anything that we can do to kind of help keep the lights on here at Monster Kid Radio, well, you know, helps us out. Also, speaking of that store, click on where it says Books and Reference. One of the first books that's going to turn up in the Monster Kid Radio library, the Amazon store, is a book called Eiji Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters, Defending the Earth with Ultraman, Godzilla, and Friends of the Golden Age of Japanese Science Fiction Film by author August Rigoni. I did not put this on the Monster Kid Radio gift guide, but I should have. And the only reason I didn't is because I hadn't had a chance to really read it until recently. My wife gave it to me for Christmas, and wow, this is a favorite book of mine already. I love what I'm seeing in this book. I'm only about a third of the way through it. It's got some great photographs in it. It's a wonderful book about E.G. Tsuburaya, who without him, I mean, I don't think we'd have Godzilla or Ultraman. And I mean, to learn a little bit more about this guy, especially on this side of the pond, do they call it the pond between us and Japan? Anyway, here in the States, we get to learn a little bit more about Tsuburaya. August Rigoni has done his own work. So call that a late addition to the holiday gift guide. All right. All right. Couple of notes about other podcasts. I just recently appeared. It wasn't a scheduled thing, but I was a call in. I guess you could say guest over at the Creepy Castle. Go check out creepycastle.com. Learn about their radio show. They have a podcast. And this past weekend, they did an episode all about Boris Karloff. I called in and talked with Halloween Jack and Dale Kay about the master. It was a really good time. I highly recommend the Creepy Castle podcast. I'll make sure there's a link to their podcast in the show notes. And hey, go to creepycastle.com. And that's creepy with a K, castle with a K, by the way. Go to creepycastle.com and you can watch public domain and horror hosted films 24 7 with fellow fans there's a chat window for that so go check that out go check out their podcast it's a good time also check out an upcoming episode of the kaiju cast that's at kaijucast.com that's run by my man kyle yount you've heard him on the show before talking about camera talking about all things godzilla they have got coming up what they call the emergency broadcast this is a live podcast january 11th now if you're a facebook user you can look up kaiju cast emergency broadcast in quotation marks four as in roman numeral so iv go check that out i happen to know who one of the special guests is going to be but i haven't been given the clearance or the okay to say who but i can tell you that person is very excited about being on the show kyle and company do a great job over at the kaiju casts one of my favorite shows, one of the shows that I listen to as soon as I download it. So go check them out, kaijucast.com or Facebook. And again, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Let's go ahead and wrap this show up. I want to get back to playing the Tiki Creeps. 
So that's it. Wrapping up. Remember, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Atomic Age to Stone Age. That belongs to the Tiki Creeps. It's on their album, Invaders from Beyond the Sound of Surf. Check them out over at tikicreeps.bandcamp.com. Show them some love and tell them that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to everybody here in a couple of days. (laughs) 